Job ready? Employer says yes. This programme is presented by Eduvate, education and innovation. I'm Jonathan Brill. In today's show, The Gig Economy, a recent survey by YouGov shows the attitudes of a number of workers in the gig economy. And in an interview with a coup, no, not a farmyard animal, but the chief operating officer of the Carlowry Castle Hotel. And finally, in the world of artificial intelligence, can the algorithms of machine learning improve medical diagnostics? And in today's news, another survey by YouGov about the gig economy. It's always in the news, but what does it mean? It's hard to think beyond ride-sharing apps like Uber or someone with your takeaway on the back of a push bike like Deliveroo. But it also includes a host of online platforms connecting buyers and sellers for all kinds of work. Click work, microtasks you can do on your phone while waiting for the bus to all sorts of bespoke specialist work like designers. There's been a lot of concern about employment rights in the gig economy, but how big is it? Who's working in it? Many young people are in it now and also thinking about it. So the YouGov survey had over 5,000 people respond and most people hadn't heard of the term gig economy. That's about 80%. And the figures are similar in the UK and the US. Do keep up. The profile of workers is fascinating. Six in 10 gig economy workers also had a permanent employee job. But although the gig economy is relatively new, the study highlighted several long-standing issues. Low pay. People aren't in the gig economy to get rich. What are they earning? About six to eight pound an hour, depending on the type of work done. Gig economy income for many was a top up. It was for extras. For others like students, it helps pay the way through. Insecurity. We could easily use words like flexibility and uncertainty. The contingent nature of the work hanging around on street corners waiting for a phone call before you do a delivery means it can be difficult to plan how much work you're actually going to get. The legal position, it's a mess. Gig economy workers are regarded as self-employed. This, in a way, is a default position because no one wants the cost and risk of being their employer. This can suit the gig economy worker doing this on the side, but some platforms appear to be seeking a degree of control not usually associated with self-employment. Many gig economy workers are content with their working lives, and few, just 14%, do this work because they can't find an alternative. Preparing for the future. Now, this is interesting. Is the gig economy a good way to study all sorts of things in the new ways associated with online learning. Perhaps gig economy workers will be in the forefront of developing new approaches to lifelong learning. It's a bit of a muddle now, but a new way of working? It's worth a thought. For today's interview, I caught up with Stephen Turner in the splendid surroundings of Carlowry Castle Hotel. Hello, I'm at Carlowry Castle today talking to 
a really interesting person, Steve Turner, who's not only working for a larger organization called Exalta, he also has specific interests in Carlari. So, hi, Steve. Uh, tell me about how you have got to the exalted position of a partner in Exalta Capital Partners. Oh, I'm not sure if it counts as being exalted, but uh, I've been working with Exalta Capital Partners for about three years now. And I got into this area of work because I developed a good understanding of how businesses grow, how businesses bring new talent and new people in. And I've been really fortunate to be able to work here at Kalari Castle as an Exalta client. And uh, Kalari Castle is a fantastic space with lots of young people coming in and we've got a great opportunity to help people develop new skills and to bring in new areas of work. What does Steve Turner do? So I'm here as the Chief Operating Officer. I manage and I've put together the team of managers, and people who are growing this business. So we have a marketing team, we have an operations team, we've got a finance team. All of these different aspects of the business are pulled together through the work that I do, delivering the strategy and aligning the way in which everyone thinks about the work that they do and the things they prioritize and their approach to customers. In a business like this, it's all about how people experience it and their their passion for it as they work here, as they come here as guests. It's just an opportunity for them to pull that all together in one area. So in terms of your skill sets, it seems to me that you have to have a strategic skill set that is big vision, but you also seem to have to have a detailed skill set that is the capacity to deal as you are today with the logistics, the detail of running a major event. No, you're right. It's running a complex business. And clearly that starts with having a, a, a commonly understood objective. Everyone wants to work towards achieving something that the business wants to achieve. And you're right, then the strategic thought comes in. We need a strategy, sometimes more than one strategy for different aspects of the business. And then we do the tactical and the action pieces underneath. And it's pulling together all of those elements to, to pull together what we need for the business to achieve. Looking around the event today, and it is beautifully organized, you have a lot of young people around uh, who are doing various jobs. What sort of qualities are you looking for when these young people knock on your door and say, excuse me, have you got a job? We've got a great starting point at Kalari, and that is that Kalari people smile more than ordinary people. I want people who are going to come in here and they're going to have a real passion for it and they're going to really enjoy their work. And part of my job, part of the job of my team is to have an environment where people can enjoy what they do. It's hard work. Anyone who's worked in hospitality will tell you that it's a really tough industry and it puts great demands on you. But Kalari people smile a lot. When I'm recruiting, I also look for intelligence. I look for an attitude. I look for people who are really passionate about what they want to do. And people are not frightened to come up with some ideas, whether they're good ideas or bad ideas. I want to hear them. Our general manager here is still under 30. We've got a really young team, a very energetic and passionate team. And I look for those qualities coming through. And we have this definition of what we believe Kalauri people are. And that's we look for those things to bring them in and help people grow in their own abilities as they're with us. So if a person comes with a catering college skill set and another person doesn't, are you going to favour the person from the catering college how does that work? It will vary. And certainly we look 
to, to core personalities, people who've taken the time and the effort to learn a set of competencies and skills are really very, very useful in a business like this. But that has to be combined with the attitude as well. One of our young people on the management program right now has come to us from a completely different industry, but came to us with an incredible attitude. We're supporting him with training and with knowledge around the industry. So we can take people from both backgrounds. I would say that if I've got two very similar candidates in front of me and one of them's got a great skill set coming from a, a college that's relevant, then they're probably going to have a, a higher position. But I will always take both in, in tandem. Someone comes in here perhaps at a part-time basis, you employ part-time people, uh, and likes it. Is it possible to progress up in Carlari through the business to, to higher areas? Or are you going to be, you're in this sort of job and that's where you'll, where you'll be? Oh, it's absolutely possible for people to progress through the business. It's one of our main objectives is that people realize their own potential. Part of the culture within the business is about people growing, people growing within the business as well. And I wouldn't want any one of our team members to think that they were stuck where they are. In this type of business, we have a lot of casual staff who will come in and they will, they will work on the bar when the bar is busy. They'll work in food service, but they've always got the opportunity to take on managerial projects, which can lead into managerial roles, which can lead to opportunities to move up through the organization. So here we have a partnership, capital partnership, Exalto. We have a high end, if you like, a hotel business working with uh, the corporate sector with the wedding sector and so on. And we have a clearly structured policy uh, working with young people, seeing the talent pool, if you like, as an important thing. But there is another element too, is there not? And that is you have a social impact philosophy as well. Absolutely. We've got two key areas of social impact. One is our environment policy. So here at Calari Castle, we have a biomass generation point. We make all of our own hot water on site and we do everything that we can to reuse and recycle and to minimize our, our environmental impact right. on the space around us. But we also have an affiliation with Restart, which is a charity helping homeless people to put some structure back into their lives. Um, uh, the castle's owner, Andrew Marshall, is the founder of the Restart Charity. We've got a very close relationship with them and we support them on a regular basis. How does that support work in a, in a tangible day-to-day -day sense? Do you give them money? Do you give them advice? How does that work? All of the above. Uh -huh. So yes, the, the castle does make a, a contribution to the charity. It's part of our ethos. It, we think it's very important for us to, to give back to the communities and to the people where we work. Um, but we also have a regular interaction uh, on a number of levels with the team there. And so it's a constant two-way process. And it's not just a giving process. We learn and we take in a lot from our engagement with the charity as well. I think it's an important part of who we are and how we learn and how we take our place in the world that we're able to have a two-way dialogue and everyone benefits from that. So there's a young person, they come knocking on your door and they say, I would like to work you. What is the worst thing they could do at interview? What would you advise them most not to do? Oh, I think don't lose interest. So often when you're interviewing someone, you're looking for a clear engagement with them. People who make great eye contact with you, who express an interest in what you're doing, then they're the people that grab you and you want to try and 
try and get more from them. So I think if anything, the thing not to do is not to be overly nervous. If you're going to meet with people, they're human people, human, human beings on the other side of the table as well. Engage with them, be yourself, and try to engage with them properly. I think that's the main idea for us. So in the interview, you're being advised with eye contact, you're being advised to, to do things correctly. In terms of preparation for a job, you're coming for a part-time job, say. Let's, mm -hmm. let's differentiate between the two. You're coming for a part-time job. Should they bother preparing or do they just turn up and say, hello, I'm here. Uh, how much money is it per hour? Oh, please prepare. We love it when people prepare. I would love you to have questions for us. Ask us about how the place works. Talk to us about why you'd want to come and work here. I think people who generate that, that level of interest, they're willing to do a little bit of online research. Check something out. Think of a question that's appropriate. That level of engagement makes you stand out from the crowd phenomenally. And following on for that, if they've done all that, what's the tip? What's the, the differentiator that's going to secure them? Well, there's two great candidates, but I'm going to choose that one. Ask for the job. At the end, if you feel that you've had a great interview, you've connected with someone, don't be afraid to say, I'm really interested in this. I would love to work with you. Can I come and work here? Don't be frightened to ask the question. And finally, Craig Lowry, as I think we've discovered, is quite a unique place in itself and, quite, and has quite a unique infrastructure. Is Scotland the best place for this type of venture? Scotland's the perfect place for this type of venture. So we have an international clientele here at Kalauri. We're a few hundred meters away from Edinburgh Airport. We're only a few minutes drive away. Um, and Scotland has an incredible reputation and place in the world where the people look to us for food and drink, whiskey, golf, whatever it is about Scotland. There's a genuine warmth from around the world towards Scotland. People want to come here and to be part of what Scotland gives to the world. And so Kalari is the perfect location for that. I've been talking to Steve Turner at Kalari Castle. And I promise you, if you've ever got a minute or two, do come out and have a look. It's a fabulous place. Steve, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. And now on the topic of AI and machine learning, we are in the area of your health. Did you know that diagnostic errors, that's where the diagnosis of what is wrong with you is incorrect contributes to approximately 10% of patient deaths and also accounts for 6 to 17% of hospital complications. It's important to note that physician performance, that's doctor's performance, is typically not the direct cause of diagnostic errors. In fact, researchers in the United States attribute the cause of diagnostic errors to a variety of different factors inefficient collaboration and integration of health information technologies, gaps in communication amongst doctors, patients and their families, and a healthcare work system which by design does not adequately support the diagnostic process. To address these challenges, many researchers and companies are leveraging artificial intelligence to improve medical diagnostics. So to solve this, will there be cutting out layers of staff whose prime function is to communicate, or will these staff be helped 
to do their job better. There are four key areas to watch out for. In oncology, that's cancer, researchers are using deep learning to train algorithms to recognize cancerous tissue at a level comparable to trained physicians. And the trick here, to catch the cancer early. In pathology, the medical speciality concerned with the diagnosis of disease based on laboratory analysis of bodily fluids, machine vision and other machine learning technologies can enhance the efforts traditionally left only to those guys with microscopes, the pathologists. Rare diseases, particularly interesting, facial recognition software is being combined with machine learning to help diagnose rare diseases. And the chatbots, companies are using chatbots with speech recognition capability to identify patterns in patient symptoms to form a potential diagnosis, prevent disease and recommend an appropriate course of action. There are few companies working in this area now and hundreds of millions are being invested, but it may be a few years before we see whether there's going to be real improvement. The experts at Tech Emergence who have conducted this research see these developments at a very early stage, but they have the capacity to revolutionize the jobs market inside the medical fraternity. You'll find us online at eduvate.biz. Job ready. Employer says yes.